Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Think for Yourself, Walda Haywat. A much-discussed problem in today's philosophy of religion is religious pluralism. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that you are convinced of God's existence. How do you know which religion to follow, which community to join in worship of this God? Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and many other religions propose quite different and often mutually exclusive beliefs about God and his relation to human affairs. And of course, the vast majority of religious believers did not adopt their faith after carefully reviewing all the rival candidates. Rather, in the words of Walda Haywat, the children of Christians are Christians, the children of Muslims are Muslims, the children of Jews are Jews. There is no reason for their faith other than this. Haywat was, as we know from the previous episode, the student and close confidant of Zara Yaakov. Like his teacher, he was much concerned that his beliefs about God not be formed by mere imitation of his parents or of anyone else. They should instead be grounded in rational inquiry. Haywatt explicitly poses the problem of religious pluralism and offers a solution to it. He writes, Which one of these faiths is the true one that we should believe in? Tell me if you know, because I myself do not know. That I may not be misled in my faith, I believe nothing except what God demonstrated to me by the light of my reason. Effectively, he demands that religious believers start from scratch, divesting themselves of their spiritual upbringing and working out for themselves what can be believed about God. Like Zara Jacob, he thinks it is possible to prove God's existence, though he gives a different proof. Whereas Jacob argues that we need to introduce God to stop an otherwise infinite regress of causal explanation, Haywat argues that everything in our world of experience is subject to creation and destruction. Since such things are incapable of creating things from nothing, there must be a higher principle that creates them. By contrast, the specific practices that characterize the various religions, such as dietary laws, cannot be grounded in rational argument and should be dismissed, following Haywat's watchword, we do not believe this thing because we do not know it. If we follow this policy, we can never go astray, since we are believing only that which all humans would accept if they devoted sufficient effort to philosophical inquiry. Haywatt and his master knew that theirs was a radically innovative approach to matters of religion. In the final chapter of his book, Zara Yaakov wrote, Behold, I have begun an inquiry such as has not been attempted before. It was an investigation he undertook at the behest of Wada Haywatt, who was taught by Zara Jacob from a young age. In the epilogue he appended to his teacher's book, Haywat lets us know that Zara Jacob was 68 when he wrote his book and that he lived another 25 years, which would place his death in 1692. Walda Haywat does not help us with the date of his own book, saying only that he was well advanced in years at the time of writing. Presumably, his book was written either in the 1690s, soon after Zara Jacob's death, or otherwise early on in the 18th century. Unsurprisingly, it takes up and defends Jacob's views, not least the rationalism that is at the core of both treatises. Haywatt writes, I do not write what I have heard from the lips of men or what I have received from the doctrines of men, unless it is what I have examined and know to be good. But I shall write the things which appear to me to be true, after I have examined them and know them in the eyes of God, from whom I asked in constant prayers and supplications that he show me the truth.
And Hewat even addresses the question of how to defend Zara Yaakov's method of rational inquiry from objections that followers of the various established religions are likely to raise. If they ask why you do not believe in what they take to be the true religion, remind them that unbelief is the default. You do need a reason to believe in something, but you don't need a reason not to believe in something. If they assert that God revealed the truth to the founders of their faith, remind them this is not to rely on the reason that God gave you, but on the words of men. Finally, if they threaten that your lack of belief will bring God's judgment down upon you, explain that God will not judge us for not believing that which appears to us to be false, for it is God himself who gave us the rational capacity to distinguish for ourselves between truth and falsehood. Walda Haywat also shows himself a faithful student on such questions as asceticism, criticized forthrightly by both authors, and a benevolent attitude towards people of all faiths. Haywat instructs us not to despise others because they follow a different religion, and goes so far as to say, All men are our fellow men, whether they are good or evil, Christians, Muslims, Jews, pagans, all are equal to us and are brothers, because we are all the sons of one Father and the creatures of one Creator. This is reminiscent of the reasoning given by Zara Yaakov for opposing the practice of slavery. On the other hand, Walda Hewat's book is very different in some ways from Zara Yaakov's, even in its format and themes. It is not autobiographical at all, and most of its 35 chapters offer practical guidance on how to live instead of abstract reflection on foundational matters of knowledge and faith. He concerns himself with such matters as the need to respect your parents, the value of working with your hands, the futility of divorce, and even the importance of personal hygiene. Not that this practical advice is unconnected to the theme of rational inquiry. When Haywatt warns his readers to avoid drunkenness, for example, this advice flows directly from the value he and Zara Jacob place on reason. Drunkenness, he says in words guaranteed to disqualify him from the position of favorite philosopher of frat boys, destroys reason and that intelligence which distinguishes us from irrational animals, it ruins our nature. Here, we see Hewat outlining the practice that goes with his teacher's theory. The treatise could have been called Applied Zara Jacob. In some cases, though, Hewat's practical orientation leads to a difference, at least of emphasis, between him and his master. A major theme in Wada Hewat's book is the importance of working together with others. Reason teaches us this value, he argues, because we see that human beings cannot come into existence, grow, and take care of all their needs on their own. This leads to an argument that it is important to follow the customs of whatever country you happen to be in. Disregarding such customs, he says, can lead to quarrels and other impediments to cooperation. Thus, Zara Jacob's breathtaking irreverence in matters of religious observance is somewhat blunted by Haywat. For example, while he calls fasting foolish, he also says that if someone says to you, we ought to fast, then even though you have no plans to do so, you should say, I shall do likewise, because it is fitting to seem to agree with them. Claude Sumner has relatedly pointed out that Walde Hewat did not break away from traditional patterns of thought and expression as his master did. A notable difference between the two is that Hewat often makes points using folk tales, some of which are known to have been familiar in Ethiopian tradition. There are also a few occasions where he alludes to, or even directly quotes, the Book of the Wise Philosophers, which we discussed in episode 8. One unfortunate way in which Wada Hewat seems to have been influenced by older traditions, more so than by Zeta Jacob, 
is his view of women. Whereas his teacher affirmed the full equality of men and women, Haywatt writes, Remember that a woman is weak by nature and less intelligent than men. Therefore, bear patiently with the harshness of her nature and the loquacity of her tongue. As disturbing as this concession to traditional misogyny is, one may note that Haywatt seems to think of himself as writing for women readers as well as male readers. And it is not to Zara Jacob, but to Walda Haywatt, that we may turn for the following, which would not be out of place in a sex therapy manual. Draw near to your wife, marveling at and praising your creator, and when you sleep with her, do not seek the pleasure of the conjugal act for you alone, but render it also pleasant for your wife, and do not deprive her of the portion of pleasure that God gave her. Therefore, do not be hasty, but linger a little, until she will also be gratified by the act, so that her pleasure will not remain less than yours or be weakened. Few in the male-dominated history of philosophy have bothered to defend the pleasure of sexuality in general, never mind validating and inculcating respect for the pleasure enjoyed by the female partner. It seems then that in Zara Jacob and Wada Hewat, we have two stunningly progressive, rationalist thinkers of the 17th century in Ethiopia. Or do we? At the beginning of the previous episode we mentioned, and then deferred, the issue of whether these two treatises are authentic, but we can put off the question no longer, not only because it is so important for the history of Africana philosophy, but also because it provides a window onto the fascinating sort of philological detective work that quietly goes on in the background of all history of philosophy. As we said, it was the Catholic priest Justo Dorbino who claimed to discover both works, which he provided to the manuscript collector Antoine Dabadi in the middle of the 19th century. Doubts about Dorbino's apparent discovery already circulated in his own time. An Ethiopian Catholic priest named Takla Haimanot, who knew Dorbino, reported in his memoirs, Some of those who have seen the book say that it was written by himself, and that it was fictitiously attributed to Zera Jacob. Taking his cue from this accusation, an Italian scholar named Carlo Conti Rossini produced a study of the two treatises shortly after World War I. He adduced a number of arguments against their authenticity, which have been followed and expanded upon by several later investigators, including Eugen Mittwoch in 1932. And, as we mentioned in the previous episode, just a few years ago the skeptical view was revived by Anaïs Wayon. Thus, you can now read Dorbino's discovery being debunked in Italian, German, and French. Aside from the contemporary charge, leveled at Dorbino, that Takla Heimanot mentions, the following points have been made against the authenticity of the treatises. For starters, Dorbino is the sole known source for the works, and as an enthusiastic student of Ge'i's literature and language, he would presumably have been able to produce a convincing forgery had he wanted to do so. He was apparently a rather isolated and depressive, yet also ambitious personality, the sort of man who might indeed want to do so. There's arguably some overlap between his own ideas, which ran in a rather liberal or rationalist direction, and the bold proclamations we find in Zara Jacob and Walda Hewat. Furthermore, there are linguistic parallels between the treatises and other writings that Dorbino wrote in Gaze. Then too, it has been proposed that Dorbino leaves hints of his own deception by having Zara Jacob's life story parallel his own in some ways, Zara Jacob's name also means Seed of Jacob, and Jacob was Dorbino's baptismal name. Most of these arguments go back to the studies of the early 20th century. 
They are all repeated in the recent analysis of Wion, who adds a further point. Justo Dobino claimed to have discovered not just one manuscript of the treatise by Zera Jacob, but two, one of which also has the unique treatise by Haywat. This is in itself rather suspicious. Here we have a book that is unknown for about 200 years, and a little effort by Dorpino allowed him to turn up two copies in fairly short order. More importantly, Wion compared the different recensions of the treatise by Zara Yaakov and found that the differences between them look like active rewriting, and not merely the usual mistakes always made by scribes when copying out text by hand. In other words, on her analysis, Dorbino tipped his hand by improving the text of Jacob he himself had written when producing the last version that had supposedly come into his possession. This is indeed disquieting, though one can imagine other explanations. For example, perhaps they are different revisions of the text from earlier in the textual transmission, like by scribes who wanted to clarify the wording or update the language. Thus, the eminent scholar of Gaiz's studies, Getacho Haile, speculates that the manuscripts we have are not faithfully copied from the original, and thus may not represent the original author's ideas with complete accuracy. Haile's own suspicion is that the original work was indeed written in 17th century Ethiopia, but that both of the copies we have now show some revision from the mid-19th century, including by Dorbino. The other arguments we've mentioned were extensively discussed and rebutted by Claude Somna, whose work has been so crucial in bringing these and other texts of Ethiopian philosophy to an English readership. He and others have dismissed the 19th century accusation of forgery as mere hearsay, as it is evident that Takla Haimonot did not himself examine the text. Furthermore, producing such convincing works in Geiz would have required an astounding degree of expertise from Dorbino, and in Sumner's judgment this was well beyond him. His own works in and about the language, including a work on Geiz grammar and a dictionary of the language, are said to be riddled with an appalling number of errors. The supposed harmony between Dorbino's thought and the extreme rationalism of the treatises is itself rather persuasively challenged by Sumner. His views were specifically Christian, Catholic, and clerical, and bringing them together with the perspectives of the true treatises would in fact be a head-on collision. Even the clever point about the choice of Zara Jacob's name is convincingly diffused. Why would someone allude to their baptismal name if they were writing a heretical work which overturned the Christian faith? Plus, as we saw, Zara Jacob is not a name without precedent in earlier Ethiopian society. Finally, and centrally, Sumner makes the point that it is hard to believe the two conjoined treatises were written by the same person, which obviously makes it hard to believe that Dorbino wrote them both. Sumner argues for this on linguistic grounds, pointing out disparities that would have been very difficult or unlikely for Dorbino to fake. Haywat's sentences are on average a different length than those of Jacob, for example, and his vocabulary is rather different. As we've seen, Haywat has a different assessment of the value of social custom, among other minor but still real divergences of opinion. So, we would have to believe that Dorbino took the trouble not just to forge these two treatises, but to adopt two different literary and philosophical personas that clash, although often in minor ways. That seems rather extraordinary. Getachu Haile has recently made a few further points against Dorbino's authorship. How, for example, would Dorbino have known to allude to the controversy about the Sabbath in the treatise of Zera Jacob? As we saw last time, this was genuinely a matter of debate in 17th century Ethiopia. Also, there is the use of the Psalms in the texts. It's clear that the version used is that of the Ethiopian church and not the Catholic prayer book that would have been used by Dorbino. 
And by the way, in another disparity, both authors use the Psalms, but Haywatt tends to allude to them implicitly instead of quoting them, as Jacob does. Along such details, we would add the following. The forthright rationality and rejection of uncritically accepting the faith of one's fathers has seemed to many readers to be an implausible stance for two thinkers of 17th century Ethiopia. It looks more like an idea you'd find in, say, an offbeat 19th century intellectual who's been reading a lot of Enlightenment European philosophy, like Dorbino. But this is wrong. In fact, Islamic intellectual culture at that time and for a long time before, was profoundly devoted to criticism of what in Arabic is called taklid, the uncritical acceptance of authority. As we'll be hearing in upcoming episodes, not a few intellectuals of late medieval and early modern Islam were also proponents of the rationalist idea that in matters of religion, one should think for oneself. Even if we don't appeal to influence from Islamic culture on these Ethiopian thinkers, it is at least clear that Enlightenment Europeans had no monopoly on a critically-minded and rationalist approach to religion. Besides, to cite yet another point made by Haile, Zira Jacob and his student could already have been influenced by rationalist currents from Europe, given the presence of Portuguese Jesuits in the Ethiopia of their time. One notable feature of this whole debate is that everyone concerned seems to be more confident about it than they should be. Sumner is totally convinced that the treatises are real, his opponents that they are forged, though Wian hedges her bets a little by admitting that no proof is definitive. Our aim is not to convince you one way or another, but just to put at your disposal some information about these fascinating texts and the equally fascinating debate over their provenance. But we hasten to add that the reality of a worthwhile philosophical tradition in Ethiopia does not rise or fall with Zera Jacob and Walde Hewat. Alongside the other texts we looked at in the last couple of episodes, including those by the definitely real emperor, Zera Jacob, we would like to mention one final example, one that incidentally gives the lie to Haywatt's claim that women are less intelligent than men. We have in mind The Life and Struggles of Our Mother, Walata Petros, a book recently translated by Wendy Belcher and Michael Kleiner. This is a contribution to an important genre of Ethiopian literature, Accounts of the Lives of Saints, by a monk named Galautewas. Walata Petros, who you'll be relieved to hear was definitely a real person, was a nun born in 1592, and thus someone whose life was shaped by the disastrous attempt to impose Catholicism on Ethiopia under King Susenyos, just like Zara Jacob, if he was also a real person. Petros was married with children, but left her husband because of his participation as a counselor to the king and military commander in imposing the foreign faith. Supported by her fellow nun and lifelong companion, Eheta Christos, she became a major voice and leader of resistance against the king and the Jesuits. After the re-establishment of the Ethiopian Orthodox faith, she was celebrated as a hero, with King Fasiladas, who re-established the faith and expelled the Jesuits among her admirers, and she died famous and beloved in 1642. As Belcher says, the book by Galautewas about her life is the earliest known book-length biography of an African woman, and it can be read as an inspiring tale of a successful, non-violent movement against European proto-colonialism. It is fascinating to compare the reactions and experiences of Walata Petros and Zera Jacob in the time of King Susenyos. There's no doubt that Zara Jacob provides us with a more recognizably philosophical response. On the other hand, we should not miss the extent to which the rejection of Catholicism by Ethiopians like Walata Petros involved a long-standing metaphysical question. 
When Galaudeus refers to Catholicism as the filthy faith of the Europeans, he cites the idea that Christ has two natures as its distinguishing feature and says that the holy faith of Alexandria, by comparison, holds that Christ is not split or divided in anything. At one point, Walata Petros was subjected to, as Belcher puts it, thought reform, as the king forced her to spend time with Jesuits endeavoring to convert her. But according to Galatewos, she argued with them, defeated them, and embarrassed them. Like Queen Makeda in the Kebra Nagast, then, Walata Petros is an Ethiopian heroine, admired for her wisdom and leadership. The Ethiopian literary tradition is brimming with overlooked figures, and we hope to have made clear the need for more translation and study, so that these figures can be better appreciated beyond Ethiopia. The next tradition of writing we will explore on this podcast, Islamic philosophy in sub-Saharan Africa, is equally or perhaps even more in need of scholarly attention. But before we go into that, we have an interview with Theodros Kiros, who has written much on Zara Yaakov, Walta Hewat, and the Ethiopian philosophical tradition. Like a crowd gathered at a jazz concert in Addis Ababa, let's keep listening to the Horn of Africa next time on the History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 